Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Reedy. Today is Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Tonight, I'm going really back into our archives, and I'm going to be talking about communication skills 101 and beyond. I, I think it's important for me to do this because I think that this broadcast deserves a, a fresh update and a fresh face. So I'm going to get into that in just a moment. Before I get into that, I want to spend just a moment talking about our intensives. Uh, one of the things that, that I believe in the most, that I believe can make the biggest difference in your life and the lives of your children, the, the life of your marriage or your co-parenting relationship is the foundation of your own work. If you want to know what I mean by your own work, you can go back and listen to the broadcast where I talk about what is your own work that I did a few weeks ago. But essentially, it is to understand how you're made, to understand your history, to understand the, the, the energy, the feelings, the, the, the ideas that live in your body that you're not conscious of. That's what finding you is about. It's, it's going back, understanding your life, and, and understanding and plugging into what, what, how those, those patterns and those old experiences, the, the traumas, the gifts, the ideas how they're contributing to the dilemmas that you're struggling with today. I cannot think of something more valuable to invest in. I believe in it with my whole heart. It's something I've done seven or eight times myself as a participant. Uh, it's something that, that my, my business partners have done, that, that we've sent several of our, of our key employees to, our therapists to. We really, really believe in this. And all of those, those that, I just, that I just talked about who have attended, including myself and my partners, and our therapists and, and key managers, all of those were at another program. So it was it was a full price experience. It's something we didn't just, just funnel them into our product, our process, but we believe in it. The difference between ours and others is ours is more clinically based. Ours is based on attachment-based therapy, the attachment theory of therapy. So that's one difference. We have an in-person version of it, and we also have an online version of it. The in-person is four and a half days. It's hosted at a beautiful inn in the Heber Valley outside of Park City, Utah. And the virtual one that we started during COVID, I was skeptical about it myself. But once I ran my first one, I realized that so much of the work that we do can be done virtually. So, And I think a lot of us have learned that through the pandemic and through our, our, our exposure to, to virtual meetings. So those are available online. And they're, they're half the time Uh about a third of the cost and you don't have to travel. So if resources, both time and money are, are an issue for you, the online version is a wonderful opportunity. We also have others and, and customs that you can that you can learn about. Contact intensives at evoketherapy.com if you want to find out any more about those. Now to get into my broadcast this evening. I'm going to start off with this. This is from the Audacity to Be You in my chapter on skills and tools where I highlight some of the skills and tools that we're going to be talking about tonight. I write, more than any other, the question I am asked most by clients is for a list of skills to help them in negotiating relationships. I'm reluctant to answer because what is so often implied in this request is this question. What tools or skills can you give me that will change my child or my partner or my circumstances? This is not a conscious thought most people have when asking this question, but still it is there. It is there because as I explore their attempts to use this or that tool, they will often respond by saying something like, I don't think that will work. Or they return after attempting to implement their new tool and say something like, I tried it and it didn't work. 
When I inquire about their failed attempt to use the new skill, it is clear that the, quote, what works, unquote, part of their assessment is a change in another person or a change in circumstances outside of their control. So, like the chapters on behavioral change and communication in my first book, I'm including this chapter here with the caveat. The goal of presenting these tools is to provide the reader, in this case, the listener, with something that can change you, not the people around you. I cannot underscore this first point enough. In fact, as I get to the points where I talk about the skills and tools, I want to reiterate, I want to underscore as much as I can. Communication theory as I see it today is a way of gaining more awareness for ourselves, a way of understanding the relationship that we have between our perceptions, our thoughts or interpretations of what we see and hear. Uh, our feelings, the relationship between our behavior and our feelings, the relationship between our, our, our interpretation or, or our ideas and our feelings, it's really, for me, much more an internal tool. So as we talk about that tonight, that underscores all of this. I will tell you this, that when I presented this first, and I presented it many, many times, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I was still on the track that most people were, that if you do it just right, it might not guarantee the outcome that you want, but it'll go a long way towards getting the outcome that you want. And now today, all these years later, I don't think about it in those terms. I think about the ideas that we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight, I think about them in terms of my relationship to myself and to other people, but I don't use them as formally as I once thought. I don't use them because I've learned to incorporate them into the way that I think about, the way that I, the way that I am, the way that I am with other people. And I'll talk a lot about those ideas as we go along this evening. I wrote in chapter four of the Audacity Bee, communication skills help us connect to our children and ourselves. In fact, this is from the journey of the rogue parent. As we become more clear about the relationship between the events in our lives, our thoughts and our feelings, we will be better able to see our children and provide them with a safe context with which to work through their problems. More important than the skills themselves are how we hold our children in our minds. Or to put it another way, what we think about the other person is more important than what we say to them. Once we regard the other with love and without judgment, our skills, particularly our communication skills, can provide clarity and connection. When we nest our communication skills in love, positive regard and authenticity, our ability to communicate honestly and clearly will follow. A very simple way to understand this is the impact of how we hold our children in our minds is this, how we think about our children, how we feel about them is how they will come to think about themselves. So I have learned the hard way, of course, as has my wife on both ends of the equation. We have learned that we, we have the capacity to weaponize our skills. You've seen this already, I'm sure. If you've been to marriage counseling, if you've had any kind of communication skills training, you have seen how the, the same sentiment, the same uh, feeling, the same idea can be communicated whether or not you use these skills and tools. So the tool is, is more of, of something that we use to train ourselves. That's the way I like, like to think about it. When I say something like, I feel this way when you, when you do X, Y, or Z, 
what I'm doing is I'm, I'm learning to own my feelings. They're my responsibility. I take ownership of them. Now, of course, the great barrier to assertive communication skills training, to, to what, what one author calls nonviolent communication, the great barrier is to own one's feelings, to own one's perceptions of things, one's interpretation of things, is in essence to take on the issue yourself. But we don't like that. We, as human beings, it is fundamental to our development in nature to make the other person the problem. I would much rather talk about what a jerk my wife is being or my child is being. I would much rather talk about that than to talk about my feelings, which are nested in my own idea of myself, my own ego, my own issues, if you will. To be clear, I wrote, Communication is not a tool for changing the behavior of others. Again, the goal is not to change the other to make ourselves feel better. If we do that, we're implicitly telling our children that it is their job to make us happy. The most common mistake in parenting worldwide from my observations and experience are is this. Most parents tell their children how they feel with the idea that the children is then made to feel or ought to feel responsible for their parents' feelings and then change their behavior accordingly. When we tell our children that we're happy or proud of them, sad or disappointed, angry or upset with them, unless we've evolved, in essence, what we're saying to our child is, this is how you made me feel. And therefore, it's incumbent upon you to change so that I can be happy. This pattern that I see universally that I still slip into sometimes today predisposes our children to lose themselves. It creates a vulnerability to peer pressure. But if we can start to think in terms of these communication skills, not just use them, but think in terms of these communication skills, then we can be fully present with somebody in a relationship. When I teach parents, not to use their feelings or words to try to guilt their children into behavior change. I'm often misinterpreted as saying, don't tell your children how you feel. Far from it. My point is, we tell our children how we feel so we can be present with them and more intentional in our, in our response to them. I have said at times, since I wrote this, this, this paragraph, I have said at times that I'm almost underline, underscore, highlight, italics bold. I'm almost at the point where I tell parents not to share their feelings with their children. And the reason that I'm almost there is because rarely do I see an exchange between partners in a couple, a co-parenting relationship, a parent-child relationship that don't fall into that trap of, of, of in, essence, in essence, handing feelings over to the other person and making them responsible. When I was in 10th grade, some of you might know my story. I dropped out of high school just soon after I saw this, actually. When I was in 10th grade, I saw on the wall of my 10th grade classroom this quote and haven't forgot it since. From George Orwell, he said, But if thoughts can corrupt language, then language can also corrupt thought. And here's my thinking about how it applies today. 
everybody listening to me understands that what we think can affect what we say for, for, for better or for worse. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. The verbal things that we say, the verbal expressions that we share are, are in essence, our internal world spoken outward, spoken out loud. But as Orwell suggests, it can go in reverse. If we change our language, it can corrupt in his case is the word that he used, but it can change our thoughts. We can start to use different words, different ideas come to us. We can start to avoid certain words and we start to think differently. There are words that, that, that I don't use, not because I, anymore I, I, I try not to use them as unhealthy skills, communication skills. I don't use words like should or must or need to or have to or ought to. Rarely in the context of, of important emotional issues, I, I, I don't use words like right and wrong, good and bad. Not because I'm following some kind of skill template, but because I don't think in that way. Now, I will tell you, years ago, being trained in communication theory myself as, as a student, as a, as a client myself in treatment and in therapy, it was just the following of a skill. And there are times today, in fact, I've told a story recently with my daughter, where when I was feeling particularly stuck, particularly stuck, particularly challenged, I thought to myself, you know the skills and just follow them. So I was able to fall back on them. But fundamentally, as I talk tonight, I'm talking about the idea of, of, of communication skills training being sort of a, a mindfulness meditation, a, a way of thinking about ourselves and a way of thinking about our relationships. When we use healthy communication skills built upon a foundation of deeper principles and understanding, we create a safe place for our children and beckon them out of self-medicating symptoms and into genuine feeling. Communication skills become the tools for unpacking the pain beneath the symptoms. I will be as clear as I can about this particular point. Fundamentally, we think of mental health, mental illness. We think about symptoms as an expression of unfelt feelings. Sometimes I'll refer to them as coming out sideways. Unexpressed grief, unexpressed grief hurt, anger, what have you. It, it, it leaks out symptomatically. And so when uh, an individual who's cutting on themselves, who's depressed, who's anxious, who's phobic, who's self-medicating with substances or, or, or sex or computers or screens, the list is virtually en endless. Every therapist, virtually, every therapist in, 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 in any setting will, will consider and start to talk about what's the feeling, what's going on, what's unexpressed, what's not spoken. And this is where it gets difficult for us parents. The first place that we look for these feelings is, is how they've been directed toward the parents. Where's the hurt and the anger toward the parents? Where's the sadness? Where's the grief towards the parents? And we ask children in the, in the case of our program or adults in the case of our intensive program to talk about that. But if the family is dysfunctional to a certain extent 
and every family is dysfunctional to, to one extent or another. Then there's this shared story or ethic in the family, if you will, well, where everybody's trying to protect the parent ego. See, the parent has to be good. The parent can't be bad. I myself have struggled, still struggle with that idea. I was just telling somebody today, many years ago, I was teaching a parenting workshop in a church in Toronto, Canada. And this particular story had been replicated many, many times up to this point. I was teaching some skills and some tools and a, a mother raised her hand and she said, I feel so much shame when you're talking about this. And because I didn't want my teaching to have that effect on people, I, I, I tried to find a way to talk about it that I could, I could take it away from her. Today, I wouldn't do that. Today, what I would say, if I'm teaching something, a, a concept, a, a tool, a, an idea about parenting and relationships, and somebody said, I feel horrible, my response would be to lean into that. And to say, yeah, that's the first step. The first step in changing for all of us, not just the identified patient, but for all of us is to say, yeah, I have some part in this. My child doesn't share their feelings assertively because maybe I don't listen as well as I could. Maybe my ego's too threatened. Now, I don't think that consciously. What I say consciously is it's not my fault. I'm not the one with the problem. You're just trying to avoid accountability. That's what we say to ourselves. But that's not the psychological process that we as clinicians know is happening. I talked about this in the Audacity to be you. Again, underlining the idea of the skills that we'll be talking about in the second half of the broadcast. In a staff meeting recently, I wrote, I was pondering the tools. And one of our staff asked about my suggestion that simply confronting defenses often leads to a re-fortification of the defense. Telling a client, for, for instance, you're justifying or you're in denial can provoke the defense. The staff member asked me, isn't challenging them helpful to their growth? Explaining how confronting the defense can serve to reinforce them or drive them the underlying further underground only to reappear somewhere else in some form, I advise this. Be with them. This was my answer. Be with them in such a way so that they feel safe enough that they'll let down the wall. I don't confront justifying in my clinical practice. But clients do it less and less with me over time. I pointed to a poster on the wall where I had the, the list of the eight tools that I talk about in the book and that I'll be talking about a little bit tonight. And I said, those tools, they don't, they don't make you enlightened. But if you were enlightened, you would use them. This is how you would sound. This is how you would relate to others. It's this way of being with another that makes the difference in the relationship. So that's really what communication tools are. They're, they're what it would sound like, for example, if we had awareness about the true nature of our relationship to ourselves and to others. This goes right to the idea of metacommunication. Metacommunication 
is in essence what the therapist is supposed to be sensitive to, aware of, of uncovering. It's the difference between what is said and what is meant. Between the process and the, the, the content. Everybody can relate to, think of, of, of a parent-child exchange, you being the child. Or a spousal exchange, you being one of the partners. Where somebody says something and a third party looking on says, I don't see the big deal, but you know what they mean. You have a greater context with this person. And you know, you know exactly the underlying feeling and theme of their communication. That's the difference between meta communication and superficial communication, the content of it. So that's what we talk about. Pathology, addictions, neuroses, and symptomology very often have their roots in unexpressed emotional pain of the individual. As the great Carl Jung said, neuroses is a substitute form of legitimate suffering. We use communication theory as therapists and in training parents to equip individuals and families with a tool that facilitates feeling, healing and integration. The feeling statement, the first one we're going to talk about tonight, is an avenue to feel, connect, choose, and ultimately change. The cycle of health and wholeness. You can find this in the, in the journey of the rogue parent. It's this model, very simple of what I've been describing. We start at a place of contentment, a, a, a birth. This is the starting point, a, a non-event. And of course, as human beings, we, we desire certain experiences. We desire nurturing, support, connection, care, listening, acceptance, attention, affection, so forth and so on. There's a, there's a long list of things we desire. And, and from those experiences, we have positive emotions, Things like gratitude, hope, peace, joy, happiness, and love. And then there are, of course, undesired experiences, things we don't want. Divorce of our parents, rejection, death of a parent, criticism, sexual and physical abuse. And out of those come undesired emotions, anger, hopelessness, guilt, fear, hurt, grief, etc. And that's really what's at the core of mental illness that there's no safe place, safe pathway, safe, safe stage with which to, to, to feel and to express those emotions. And so we cover them up. We cover up the feelings with symptoms, disordered eating, lying, sexual promiscuity, suicidality, deviant or defiant behaviors, dangerous or risky behavior, substance abuse, self-injury, Fighting, stealing, school refusal, electronics addiction, and of course the list goes on. And those behaviors serve to protect us from the feelings that we can't or don't feel safe to express. So psychotherapy, in its most basic form, is a therapist saying to you, the old cliche, how do you feel? And the second oldest cliche or maybe the oldest cliche is, tell me about your mother. Because what we're saying is, we want to know where the trauma started. And I'm not talking about the event. See, at Evoke, what we know because of attachment-based therapy is it's not the, the big T traumas that we're often after. Those will come up. 
And most people who talk about trauma are talking about big T trauma. But attachment theory, attachment-based therapy addresses and speaks to and focuses on the little T trauma, the process trauma, the developmental trauma, the attachment trauma. Sometimes it's called complex trauma. And really it is an inability for uh, an attachment figure to have enough ego strength and wherewithal and peace within their own self to allow a child to express feelings of, of rage and hurt and fear and sadness, frustration, so on and so forth. So it's not really just what happened to you. It's how it was dealt with. And therapists from the 1960s that, that, that developed the idea of family therapy in Palo Alto, California, figured that out. They called them attempted solution sequences. They said, we discovered it wasn't the events in the lives of the individuals that was the problem. It was how they addressed or tried to solve the problems, which was usually by trying to make it better, make it go away, not feel. That's the essence of psychotherapy as we see it at Evoke. That's the essence of mental health and mental illness is giving people a safe place to express their uncomfortable, undesired feelings, and we start with mom and dad. If they're willing to, we can, we can have them talk about us too as therapists. Then you really know, especially with the people in outpatient therapy, you really know you're making some progress when you can tell your therapist that you're frustrated or upset with them. Some other things to remember in communication before we get into the specific skills, they are simple but hard. They go deeper than you imagine. In the beginning, don't try any shortcuts or behind the back passes. Just try the fundamentals. Learn the fundamentals first. Part of it is just to enter. If it feels awkward and clunky, that can be okay. That's an interruption in old habits and patterns. It's simple. It's sometimes too simple. It will feel beneath you. There was a story that I learned about the great cellist Pablo Casals, who, who died in his 90s, considered the best cellist of his time. And just up to the day of his death, he practiced the scales every day. And somebody said to him, why are you practicing the scales every day? And he said, I learned something new every day. The greats are good at doing the basics. That's why I'm not a good golfer. I had a couple of... Uh, of Good shots on the, on the driving range or the putting, the practice screen, and I'm ready to go. It's okay to cheat. You, can, you don't have to use notes. I mean, you can use notes. This is not a test for comprehension. And under duress or stress, you're going to lose your mind. I've joked with people. I've said stick to the format just for the next 20 years or so. But again, as I said tonight, it's more about a way of thinking. Give them a chance to teach you something. Knowing that, that sometimes we go, and, and I, I think we overvalue this, sometimes we have an aha or an epiphany, we have an insight, and then our behavior changes. But sometimes our behavior changes, and that leads to an insight. And then, of course, like I've said many times, don't try to use this to get other people to change. So the first 
skill is the I statement. The I feel statement. I feel this way when this happens. You can look in the books that I've written. They're, they're in there. I feel this way when this happens. I feel this way because I think what I hope for myself and what I hope for, for, for someone else outside of my control. It's a very basic statement. We didn't invent it. It's, it's universally taught. But it emphasizes ownership. See, it doesn't emphasize. See, I don't, I don't choose to feel scared or angry or sad or hurt or frustrated. That wouldn't be accurate. Right? If you came up behind me and just patted me on the back. Maybe I'd been abused by my father. Maybe I'd been bullied by in, in school, what have you. And you go to pat me on the back and I flinch in reaction and fear. It wouldn't be accurate to say I chose to feel scared. I chose to feel agitated or angry or upset. That wouldn't be accurate. But it is my feeling. That's the point of the I feel. The reason that we at Evoke start off with the I feel part and not the event part or, or, or not the belief part is to emphasize this ownership. It's my feeling. I've got to do something about it. And there's a difference between interpersonal communication and the benefits, which I, I, I think are overemphasized a lot of the time in communication skills training, that it's going to make people understand each other and, 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 and more intimate in appropriate ways. That can happen for sure. But for me, it's the intrapsychic benefits, the internal benefits, the, the understanding of when these things happen, when somebody raises their voice, this is what I do because in my family, this is how we dealt with anger. Or when I feel scared, I, I, I go to, to this reactive response. If you walk away from me when we're talking, it triggers an old abandonment wound in me. You see, that's all, all of that's in the I feel statement. Stay away from communication errors like recruiting. Recruiting is saying things like everybody feels this way. Everyone knows. All people think this way. Arguing and trying to be right. Those are the, the, the antithesis of the I statement. I, I mentioned to you why I, I, I almost get to a point where I encourage parents. What I would say to parents now is be skeptical of yourself. When considering this tool, be skeptical. Ask yourself why. I remember many years ago, 10 years ago, I was sitting in a workshop in New York City talking about this skill, this tool. And, and, and somebody said at one point, wouldn't it be okay to tell my child how much this program costs? And before I could answer, Somebody from the second row behind them said, why? The person who had asked the question looked like they were thinking and reflecting. And they said, never mind, I know my answer. I want them to feel responsible. I want them to feel a sense of guilt, of obligation. I want them to, 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 take, to take care of it. I feel, the way we do it is I feel when I feel this way because I think or I believe. And then we talk about a hope for, for others. You want to know what's interesting about the hope for others? 
we have a two-parter. What I hope for myself is this that I can control. That's 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 hope number one or hope hope A. Hope number two or hope B is what I hope for in the future for others that's outside of my control is. This was almost this almost happened every single time I taught. I used to teach teach a parenting group every week for 10 years. Every week. So that's about um, 500 parent meetings. And I would teach this model. And in almost all cases, I would use a very simple I statement, an I feel statement like smoking pot, smoking weed. I would say to parents, Give a uh, let's go through a role play and give a, a a feeling statement about smoking weed to your to your child or to to somebody, and they would get through the I feel part. I feel worried, I feel concerned, I feel frustrated when I when you're smoking weed. I feel this way because I think it could get in the way of your motivation and your development. So far, most of them got that 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 right. They could talk about a hope for the other person, but almost never. Almost never could a parent say what I hope for myself, what I hope what's inside of my control is, and they couldn't finish that sentence. That's how condition 500 parent meetings. And I would venture to say that not once in all of those meetings, 10 to 20 people attending per, per meeting, did a parent understand what could they possibly hope for that's within inside their control in this equation. It lets you know as parents how programmed we are to think that the solution to our dilemma, our feelings, our, our, our frustration, our sadness, our worry is outside of our control in somebody else. If you want an example about an appropriate hope that's inside of your control, it would be something like, what I hope for myself is that I'll use clear boundaries in my communication or that I'll communicate clearly and follow through on consequences or that I'll, what I hope is that I'll understand where you're coming from, right? These, these are things I can control. The second tool is, is deep listening, reflective listening. This is, this is, this is the, the, the Holy Grail. And the reason I use the term Holy Grail is because the symbol of the Grail is that it, it holds what is put into it. That is one common interpretation of what the Holy Grail is. It's a container. It, it, it's said to have healing powers. The Buddhists call this, this skill deep listening. Clinicians historically have called it containing, holding space for the other. And we're not just... We're not just hearing what is said. We, we get better. Part of the, the whole idea of the journey of the heroic parent is that you get better at listening. You get through this process new ears and new eyes. One of the things that, that our students are frustrated with by the end of the process is they've been given this new, this new world, this enlarged worldview about feelings and communication. And when they leave, nobody's following it. Nobody else is living accountably to what they're really feeling, what's really going on inside. Joseph Campbell once said that every religion is true in one way or the other. I talk about learning to see 
deeper. Listening to your children or, or, or your partner when they're exaggerating a story, listening to them like they're telling you about a dream. Understanding the, the if you will, the symbolic nature of their exaggerations. What it's like for them. When we listen, when we listen well, when we, when we focus on listening, not, not just waiting to, to talk. Somebody said the opposite of listening one time to me. The opposite, opposite of listening is waiting. Not just waiting to talk, but really listen to understand. We develop compassion. We develop empathy. We, 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 we literally provide a healing space. We literally... Symbolically, I should say, we symbolically take on the form of the Holy Grail, holding that which is put into it. And what happens to the other is they let go. They, they learn over time, not immediately. Don't get me wrong. This is not a, a, this is another misunderstanding of communication theory. It's not a quick process that we can observe in, 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 in short in short-term situations. It's over time, the person who gets listened to learns how to feel, learns how to trust themselves, feels seen, feels safe. It's, it's really what happens. They develop what we call a secure attachment, which is a sense that they're okay. So should they up in a relationship, end up in a relationship where somebody is unkind or abusive or manipulative? They won't stay. You know, we can ask ourselves why our children end up in relationship with the bad element, right? I'm, I'm doing air quotes if you can't see me. It's partly to do with us. It's partly to do with us. And I know that's heavy, but it's the truth. And you're paying a lot of money, those of you that are in our program, and for those of you that are just listening for free, you're spending your, 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 your time, your most precious resource, listening to me. So I'm going to tell you. Our children become susceptible to peer pressure and other people's emotions and manipulation in part, in part, because that's how we parented them. We were the first ones to gaslight them. We were the first ones to dismiss to argue, to debate their feelings. And what gets in the way is our ego, our needing to be good, needing to be right. In the Four Agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz said, taking things personally is the maximum expression of selflessness because we make the assumption that everything is about me. Nothing other people do is because of you. It is because of themselves. That's part of mental health maturity is realizing that the way people act is more a reflection of them than it is of us, even towards us. Cheryl Richardson once said, people start to heal the moment that they feel heard. It's true. That's the thing. That's the magic. Now, by the time that children have arrived at our program, they're so dysregulated and the pattern is so ingrained in them that, that the structure also keeps them safe. I don't want to say that it's just 
Because because our children don't want to talk to us by the time they get to our program. They don't want to talk to you. They've shut down. And they become so accustomed to avoiding feelings that are uncomfortable. It is as if to say their feelings muscles have atrophied. Their tolerance for discomfort has dwindled. And they would rather express themselves symptomatically. Reflective listening sounds like repeating back. So what you're saying is reflecting it back. Can you help me with what you said? Did I get it wrong? Did I understand you? I wrote this in the journey of the rogue parent. If your child exaggerates when telling you a story related to his feelings, let him. You'd be surprised how often children eventually tone down their initial stories once they feel heard, feel as if they've been heard and their feelings are validated. And we've all done this. I, I said it just the other night. You get home from work and your boss overlooks an idea of yours and you say to your spouse, my boss overlooked an idea of mine today. And a very common response from a partner or a friend is to say, well, maybe they didn't know or maybe they didn't hear you. Maybe it was an oversight, something like that, something dismissive, ironically. So we don't come home and say, my boss overlooked my suggestion today. She wasn't listening. We don't say that. We say, my boss is the worst. She never listens. She always takes credit for other people's work. She's a narcissist, right? We paint the picture big enough so that the person listening to us will say, that's horrible, which is all we want anyway. And for parents, the feelings that we get initially aren't going to be the comfortable, cozy ones. In a partnership, when a wife says to me, I just want to understand how he feels, my thought is, are you sure? Because anger is often the the, the door that we have to walk through to find the other person. So we might have to start there. So many times I watch couples, so many times, where one wants to know about the inner world of the other. And once the person starts sharing it, it's like Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football, if you've seen that, that scene where Lucy promises over and over again, episode after episode, year after year, decade after decade, that she'll keep the football in place while Charlie kicks it. And of course, she pulls it away every time. The first thing that we can do to encourage our children or our partner to talk more and open up is to shut our mouths and to listen. It's not going to feel good. Remember, the listener tends to be the giver. They're the one giving energy, giving, containing takes energy. Listening takes energy. It takes capacity. The the, the speaker is the taker, ironically. So like I said before, while everybody gives all the press to, to be vulnerable and tell the truth, that's the rage in self-help these days. That's the easier part of the equation for a lot of people in the intimacy equation. Listening is the hard one. Listening with capacity is the hard one. But we can get better. So then I talk about beyond 101, beyond the basics, stating the intent before you share saying, I just want to be heard, or 
I want to be heard. And then I'll ask for advice after that. Asking the other person for what you need before you even share. If you're on the receiving end, asking the, the, the sender of the message, what would you like from me? So many problems, so many fights could, could be prevented or resolved just with the use of those two ideas. Stating the intent before you share or asking the, the intent before you respond. Try something new. The reason that we all don't change and become enlightened is because it feels wrong. Do, do you know that? I'm going to say that again. The reason, the reason that we don't improve, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's unfamiliar. And, and it's scary. It's, it's, it's dark. It's foreboding. It's, it's the unknown. It's, it's not what's familiar and known. That's, that's part of it for sure. But, but more principally is because it feels wrong. That's an important thing to realize. Communication theory isn't to change other people's behavior. It's really to change us. It helps us avoid rescuing, dismissing, gaslighting. It promotes differentiation, which is really attachment, healthy attachment. Differentiation is a word in, in family systems theory that refers to the balance between having a strong sense of self and having an empathic connection to another. So it promotes that. Again, more internally, if we've internalized the I feel statement, it can improve the relationship at times. And over time, we learn to, we learn to heal the here, excuse me, the un- I feel statement. Like I said, on my good days and my good, good moments, you don't have to say it. You don't have to say it in, in, in a formal I feel statement. Rarely do you have to. In my good moments where I'm, I'm well fed, I'm well rested. I, 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 I'm not overwhelmed with uh, stress and worry and, 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 and work. You can be pretty sloppy and I can hear you. And in, in relationships, there's often one person that's better at telling the truth, and that is sharing their feelings, talking. And there's usually one person who's better at, at listening. And if you're the better talker, sometimes you feel like the listener person doesn't talk enough. Sometimes if you're the listener, you think the talker talks too much. So if you're the good talker, if you're the one that can express fear, anxiety, worries, sadness, frustration to your partner, to your friends, if you do that well, you probably could use some, some listening practice. And maybe the reason that your partner or your child isn't talking is because you're not a safe person to talk to because you're too triggered. Because frankly, this is, this is profound. The capacity required to listen to somebody, to deeply listen to somebody, approximates, or in other words, looks like and feels like. It approximates being shut down and not being heard. The capacity to listen deeply approximates 
the process of being shut down and not heard. Because if I am listening well to you, I am setting aside for the moment my feelings, my triggers, my genuine reactions. And if I haven't sorted through my my feelings of abandonment, my feelings of being gaslit as a child, my feelings of being muzzled and, and, and stifled or dismissed, if I haven't worked through that, then I will justify my reactiveness to you and my lack of capacity for listening in all sorts of ways because my trauma is activated. That's important. The level 200 series that I talk about, pitfalls and the proper use, returning feeling statements with more feeling statements. In our family, in our marriage, we talk about like, if I'm upset or if she's upset, it's one at a time. And if, if, I'm, if both of us are upset, then it's time for a timeout because neither of us are capable of listening. I cannot tell you how many fights couples have because they both lack the capacity in a given moment or a stage of life for that matter. They lack the capacity to being able to hear the person, but they still say that they want to hear them. But they're, they have no business. They have no business pretending to listen because we know where it's going to go. So what that looks like when people practice the skill is I feel statements become weaponized and they go back and forth. Asking the center if you can return the feeling statement after you reflect, I always just say, just wait. Let it have its own space. And if you're too triggered and too overwhelmed to give it its own space, then say that you can't listen and take a time out. Take some time until your prefrontal cortex comes off, off, back online until your, your, your limbic system, the fight or flight part of your brain, relaxes some. Reacting to the I feel statement with clarifying facts, I don't even need to get into that. But I will tell you that people aren't going to tell you the truth when they give you an I feel statement. They're going to exaggerate. They're going to make up things. It's just what happens. And part of the, the, the work that we do, to, to it's called ego death in Jungian therapy. The ego death, uh, letting go of, good, of being good, of, of winning, of coming out on top. It allows us to be better listeners. Imperatives. You should, you must. Exaggerations or thinking errors are something to watch out for, for for both sides. This is the tricky one. We've had to learn this one in the second half of our marriage. After you give an I feel statement and tell your partner or your child how they feel or anybody for that matter how, how you feel, asking them what they think or, or what their reaction is, that's a red flag. That's something to pause over. Most people don't want to hear a reaction, even though they ask for it. They want it to be confirmed. They want to be agreed with. They want accountability. They want, uh, they want everybody to, to think the same way and feel the same way. They want consensus. So don't ask for a reaction. And if you're asked for a reaction, don't give one. If it's simply a, a reciting of the, the, the triggers that you felt during Level 300, understanding the difference between behavioral tools and, and connection tools, communication tools. They're not the same thing. Communication skills used as behavioral tools predispose people for codependency, 
for all kinds of psychopathology, for toxic relationships, for a lack of differentiation, for, for susceptibility, vulnerability to peer pressure. Learning the difference between a question and a statement. If you have a question, questions are great. But making a, a statement through a question feels disgusting, feels gross, feels icky. Making statements that are really questions. See, our brain doesn't like the disconnect between what is and what it appears to be. That's why we get seasick. Do you understand? If you're looking at a book, you're reading a book while you're driving in a car for some of you. The reason that you get motion sick is because your body feels the movement, but your eyes see something stable and consistent. That's why they tell you to look at the horizon because the horizon matches what your body knows. It's the same with communication theory. It's the exact same. If there's a disconnect between what is said and what is meant or the feeling, we get seasick, so to speak. We get reactive. Repeating I feel statements, even if you're the same one giving it, if you're giving an I feel statement twice, why are you giving it twice? Is it because you didn't feel heard or because you're not getting the other person to agree with you? You're not getting consensus. And if that's your goal, then you're, you, you've, you've lost from the, from the start. And then, of course, there can be inflammatory information in the I feel statement. I've been known to load my I feel statements up with all kinds of insults, curse words, horrible adjectives and exaggerations. Empathy is what we're hoping for, right? At the bare minimum, I talk about the four stages of listening. At the bare minimum, just keep your mouth shut. If you can go a little bit more, if you have a little bit more energy, minimal encouragers, things like, okay, I hear you. Thanks for telling me. Uh-huh, got it. Deeper, you can empathize. I know what that feels like. I know what fear feels like. I can understand how it felt for you. Makes sense. And then the, 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 the highest level or, or the deepest level, maybe more appropriately said, is accountability. Yes, I did do that. Yes, I am sorry. But it's okay. Any of those four. And they're just an indication of where your emotional, spiritual, psychological capacity is at. Be patient. Don't overcorrect. It's more important to listen to the spirit than it is to get everything perfectly right. The words themselves can become a distraction if we become too rigid about it. Be willing to stop the 400 level. Be willing to stop. Take a time out, quit or sleep on it or otherwise interrupt the process. I've said this before. If you show up to a relationship or to a conversation because you think you should when you're not ready or able, somebody's going to get abused, either you or the other person. Somebody's going to experience extreme distress. And I am guilty of trying to be that good husband, trying to be that good friend, that good employer, that good anybody. So I'll show up when I really have no business showing up. And it's not long before I'm arguing or debating or justifying or dismissing or gaslighting. Ownership of feelings is the key. Learning to own our feelings. Learning that at the end of the day, we're responsible for our own happiness, not our children, 
not our spouses. At the end of the day, we are. And then learning, like I said, to, to internalize the skills and the tools. When I talk about avoiding polarizations, this is tool number five from the eight tips, avoiding you always, you never, you're the worst, everyone thinks, every time. These tend to provoke the defense. Couples that have identified themselves, families, excuse me, that have identified themselves as successful post-treatment in our field identify that avoiding polarizations is the number one skill that they all use. Avoid advice giving. First of all, I, I try not to give advice ever, not because it's a technique that I use, but because I, it doesn't make sense to me to tell somebody what they should do. Because I believe fundamentally each person's responsibility to life is to figure out who they are. So shifting away from advice giving, especially with our children, turning it into an I statement like, in my experience, this is what works for me. When I've had a similar situation, I've tried this. It may work for you and it may not work for you. Tool seven is really another idea. Developing compassion toward yourself. Developing a practice of compassion towards oneself is one of the more elusive tools because most of us were taught that we need a good butt kicking, butt kicking when we make a mistake. We need to be chastised. We think that we need to be a strict schoolmaster and may even hire a therapist to take on such a role. We can try to hate the sin and love the sinner, but as they say, as they say it, but really hate towards the oneself and even one's actions leads to repression, resistance, and denial. Becoming angry at, disgusted by, ashamed of, or exasperated with our own issues does not heal them. But we've been told that if we, if we show compassion toward the sin, it will just flourish. And sometimes it does in the short term. But in the long term, it heals. Because sin is not the cause of the thing. Sin is the result of the thing. Hating the expressions of our wounds. This is so deep. Hating the expressions of our wounds, our symptoms, will only cause them to go underground and we will miss the wisdom that they have to offer. When we heal the hurt, we have no need for the anger, the resentment, and the hate, the symptom, the crutch. Thich Nhat Hanh said it this way. You should talk to your depression or your anger just as you would a to a child. You embrace it tenderly with the energy of mindfulness and say, Dear one, I know you are there and I am going to take care of you, just as you would a crying baby. The good must take care of the evil as a big brother takes care of his little brother. And at the end of the day, timeouts. You know that old adage, don't go to bed angry? Horrible advice. Absolutely horrible advice. Sometimes if you don't go to bed angry, angry, it gets ugly. Things are said. Sometimes it gets violent between couples. Timeout is, is, a, is a chance to reset your nervous system, to, to downregulate, to regulate yourself. And if you think the other person needs a timeout, I would venture to suggest that it's you who needs the timeout. Because what you're saying is, if you don't stop saying this, if you don't stop escalating, you're going to say something from which I cannot... Ignore. Something I can't ignore. Something that will trigger me over. 
over the border, over the edge. This is the secret. We hold the other in our mind with love and compassion unless we can't. We hold the other with love and compassion unless we can't. There's no right or wrong here, just capacity. You're not a good father, a good mother, a good spouse or a good friend when you can't. You're just a human who can't. I'm saying that for myself as a mantra. There's no good or bad in this capacity, just our humanness. When I work with men who were convicted of domestic violence, we would teach them timeouts. They would never take it because it was a sign of weakness, sign of vulnerability. To take a timeout is to admit that you've lost control. It's hard. People don't want to do it. They don't want to own that the issue is in here. And I'm pointing to myself. That's the fundamental developmental task, folks. Melanie Klein, uh, the great Melanie Klein psychologist, taught this. That the first stage of human development is the paranoid stage where the problem, the evil is out there. In my, it's my child's drug addiction that's causing my unhappiness. It's my spouse's drinking. It's my mother's um, control. It's my father's yelling. And she says, some people, not all, get to the second phase of development, which she called the depressive phase. Because it's when we take on the responsibility for our own happiness, our own serenity, our own lives. That's the fundamental construct in psychology. The shift from the problem is out there in the other to in me. Time doesn't heal all wounds, young Pueblo said. Time doesn't heal all wounds. It just gives them space to sink into the subconscious where they will still impact your emotions and behavior. What heals is going inward, loving yourself, accepting yourself, listening to your needs, addressing your attachments and emotional history, learning how to let go and following your intuition. Evoke Therapy Programs, folks, is not a program that teaches you how to fix the kids. That's not our main objective. We will accept children in our program and keep them safe and teach them tools and try to help them. But for, but for the purposes of this broadcast, it is a program helping you to fix you. So I have some take-homes that I'll run through. The intent of the skill is more important than the skill. The skill can be cheap. The skill can be weaponized. But it's learning to let it sink in. It's all about developing compassion and curiosity. Don't use these for behavior change. Learn to listen. Learn to love the other person as an other. Not you. Remember, the difference between me and you is I'm not you. Everything else will make a lot more sense after that. Learning that boundaries are related to your sense of self. Children are not meant to hold our feelings, to be responsible for them. It is the great and universal poison because the child will sacrifice who they are, what they think and what they feel to, to take care of the parent's ego. And that process 
becomes the, the, the departure from mental health, really. That's what it's about. Healthy communication gives people a path through their painful and difficult feelings. Learning to listen, we have to let go of ego, the idea of being right or good. When should you use it? For me, it's an internal thing. Rarely do you hear me using formal I feel statements externally, although I avoid the advice and the imperatives and the, the, the globalizations, the generalizations for the most part. But it's really about, it's really about thinking differently. That's what this, this broadcast is about tonight. And this is not going to be enough. There's going to be more work than this. What if only one person is willing to participate? Because it's for you, it makes no difference. It's irrelevant. Communication skills, training or teaching in the way that I've described it tonight, it doesn't matter if the other person doesn't use it. Yes, there can be some interpersonal benefits, but, but fundamentally it is an intra-psychic, an intrapersonal skill or tool. We can learn as we develop greater capacity, take better care of ourselves, set better boundaries. We can learn to listen to what others are not saying. We can learn to see other people's behaviors as a reflection of them and not of us. Listen, 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 and trust me, you're not doing a good job at this, not nearly as well as you think. If you are, you wouldn't even argue with me anyway because you would know how rare it is. Sometimes we learn from the inside out, but oftentimes we can learn from the outside in. That's another thing that tonight's principles and skills and tools can teach you. But keep practicing. Let the skills teach you. And the distance between where you are today and the ideal, that's the work. The space in between the, the ideal and where you are today is the work. And the work is about being different. And tonight's tools and skills is, is, are, are what it would look like if you were more aware, more conscious, more enlightened, more mentally healthy, larger, bigger, and more capable. All right, folks, I don't have time for any questions, so just going to go to the upcoming slides. You can aim your camera on your phone at the QR code on the screen if you're watching live or on our YouTube channel and go to the respective website. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You that talk about both of these things are available on Amazon and Audible. Like I mentioned at the, at the top of the broadcast, if you want to do an intensive, if you want to know the, the, the most important thing I believe that you can do to help your child, go to Finding You. And if it's too expensive or, or you don't have the time, do it online. Do it. We have returning to you for folks who have been to Finding You October 11th through 15th is that offering. And we also have a Finding You weekend in the UK, June 23rd through 25th. There's a waiting list now, so there, there might be a spot open up, but, but for right now it's full. We have custom finding connection for couples and parents and also finding family for, for families. Contact intensives at evoketherapy.com for more information. We have support groups for Wilderness Current and alumni families. The next offering is May 11th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Once a month, we have an alumni-only meeting for our Wilderness parents, our alumni of our, our, our Wilderness program. May 23rd at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time is the next offering. Once a month, we have an intensive support group online. June 13th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time is the next offering. 
Go to evoketherapy.com slash family involvement for more information. If you want a coach, uh, somebody who can do virtual coaching with you, parenting, coupleship, marriage, individual work, families, contact coaching at evoketherapy.com to learn more and to find a therapist who's a good fit for you. We ask all current parents to go to six 12-step support groups, any combination of alanon.org, coda.org, familiesanonymous.org, or adultchildren.org. Also, refugerecovery.org is a Buddhist-inspired program with less of an emphasis on a higher power and the National Alliance on, on Mental Illness. NAMI.org is a great place to go for free classes and resources in your local community. All of these broadcasts are available on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You on Evoke Therapy Podcast or go to soundcloud.com on your computer. You can also watch the rebroadcast of these on Evoke's YouTube channel. You can find Evoke Therapy programs or me, Dr. Brad Reedy, on Twitter and Instagram, respectively, using the handles at Evoke Therapy or at Dr. Brad Reedy. You can also find Evoke Intensives on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives and on Facebook. You can find us by searching Evoke Therapy programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives, and the Evoke Therapy blog is updated each week. My next broadcast will be May 16th, 6.30 p.m. I'll be taking your live questions. You can also invite your family and friends to that. All right, folks, I hope this was a helpful point of contact for and on behalf of the people that love you and the people that you love. Thanks for showing up and thanks for being willing to do your work. Have a great evening. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.